Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today I'm excited to bring you my conversation with Wes Chan, founder and managing partner of FPV, a firm that recently closed an oversubscribed $450 million fund one. Wes comes with an incredibly impressive background, having worked closely with the founders of Google from 2000 to 2009, where he founded both Google Analytics and Google Voice, and then going on to make early stage investments in 20 unicorns and five decacorns at Google Ventures and Felicis. His early stage investments include Canva, Flexport, Guild, Robinhood, Angelist, Plaid, and Ring. During our discussion, we spoke about how he's been able to have such a high hit rate in his investing career, what being founder friendly really means, and his time working with people like Sergey and Larry at Google, as well as what he learned from the great Bill Campbell. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Hey, Wes, it's so great to have you on the show. Wonderful to be here. So we're going to go into a lot of things today. And, you know, you've had an extraordinary run over 13 years backing 20 unicorns, five decacorns. Your hit rate is outstanding. But before we get into the how of, you know, investing in early stage companies at such a success level, let's go through your background, maybe from your research days all the way to your time at Google. You know, I it's actually a sort of a series of accidents, right? I went to school thinking I'd be a, a doctor and then failed organic chemistry when I was at MIT. It's probably one of the hardest organic chemistry you know classes or the, the way they teach it on the, on the planet. And so that was not my calling. But when I was in school in the in the late 90s, it was a dot-com boom. Um, I think almost two-thirds of my graduating class majored in computer science. So I said, you know, if they're all doing it, well, I should be doing it too. I'm not one for for FOMO, but you know, when all your friends are studying computer science and you're watching them, you know, they sort of get these crazy jobs in Silicon Valley and you're sitting there going, like, well, you know, medical school is gonna be one of those things where it's gonna be another eight years and then you don't get paid very much and you know, all these all these things that people warn you about, like you just go and make the leap of faith and I majored in computer science without really, you know, having a computer or knowing what that was about. So that was fascinating. And then when I graduated MIT in two thousand, it's dot com crash and I said I could not have time this any worse as all my job offers were being rescinded. And there was really only one company, you know, hiring there was, uh, it was Google, uh, you know, what they say about recessions or disasters, or, you know, when the tide goes out, like you really know who the winners are. And as Warren Buffett says, you know, who's wearing pants and Google is the only one hiring. So my parents were very, very un, uh, unhappy with this decision. They were like, oh, you know, you went to one of the top schools in the nation. You're the first in our family to ever go to school. Uh, you know, I had these proud Asian tiger parents and they were like, uh, you know, bragging to everybody I had gotten it, that their firstborn, uh, first, uh, kid ever in the family to go to school was, um, you know, with that MIT, and when they were leaving, they were hoping this Hellamut. I was going to one of these brand name companies or McKinsey or whatever else that they had uh, they had dreamed of, and I told them I was going to this tiny startup that no one heard about called Google, and they were very upset. They were, you know, they were like, you know, this there's a dot com crash. I've been reading about in this paper. How could you be going to a, a terrible startup? And I sat there. I'm like, I have no other choice. But you know, what a what a what a crazy series of accidents to wind up at one of the you know companies early on and sort of write the ad system and build AdSense and build Google Analytics and build Google Voice and eventually help start uh, Google Ventures, one of the first uh, four GPs uh, building out Google Ventures. And it was one of those privileges to be able to work with somebody like Larry and Sergey, who turned out to be one of the most misunderstood, mission-driven founders in the world. You know, I still remember them talking about the story of how they were funding the company on their credit cards or how they, uh, you know, they were, nobody would believe in them. Uh, we all forget the context of when Google started. There was all these search engines that were tricking you to stay on. They had horoscopes and they had weather reports and they had sports scores and they had games and bunched of monkey ads. 
And their whole job was to get you to stay on that portal as long as possible so they could, you know, serve you ads and learn to get this vision where it was two clicks in 10 seconds, right? That was the, the mission was to get you off Google as quickly as possible. Two clicks in 10 seconds. You type in your search, you click once, and then you find your result on this first page. And then you get off and you sit through with a stopwatch and click on the stopwatch and go like, that took 15 seconds. That's a failure. And nobody understood why that was so visionary, right? You had to have relevant search results. You had to be fast. The search engine had, couldn't sit there and grind for a minute before returning you search results. And so he... um he had this very different vision of the world that very few people understood. And it turned out to be, you know, sort of the one that everybody got. And, you know, it was a winner now. But back then it was a, everybody just sat there and said, I can't believe you're making a decision to go to this tiny startup that makes no money, that has no advertising engine. And, um, you know, it wound up uh, being one of those things where I learned how to build product and learn how to build Google Analytics and really studied under some of the, the best product people in the world who saw the world very, very differently. I call them mission-driven product designers, mission-driven founders, and it's informed my investing since. So that's that's sort of the history of how I wound up at Google and, you know, gotten to career venture capital where I was also an accident where Larry and Sergey told me that they wanted to start a, uh, a venture capital firm at Google. Uh, they said, uh, you have a knack for picking companies. You know, I helped bring in YouTube. I've helped bring in Urchin for Google Analytics. I helped bring in Grand Central for Google Voice. And he said, uh, why don't you apply that same picking to venture capital? You know, we started Google Ventures out of that, but it was all an accident, right? Because and these were things I never thought to do. And those are the things that, you know, wind up defining a career, the accidents that you just never imagined. Uh, and uh, it's the same with founders. You know, when I bump into founders and invest in them, usually it's an accident, right? Uh, but, you know, when you say yes to them and you, you believe in their team and their mission, uh, you get uh, you get sometimes some great wire results. Yeah. And we, we've talked a little bit about this, but you, I mean, at Google Ventures, when you guys started, it was kind of at the... Uh you know, the tail end or maybe even during the, uh, the recession. No, it was during, yeah, oh nine. it was during, it was during the global financial crisis. I mean, everybody else was out there. It's like, I can't believe you're starting a venture fund. They're all being wiped out. This is the stupidest thing. There are no companies coming out of this. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, we found Uber. We were, Google Ventures was investors in Uber and Nest and in some of the world's most game-changing companies, right? AngelList came out of that. Um, and I was an investor in that. Carta came partly out of that as well. Dialpad came with that, so, you know, we're, you know, over two and a half billion now. One of those things where, you know, the, like I said, when a, when there's a, when there's a, a disaster, there are some winners that come out and they become very obvious, you know, all the, all the weak companies and the marginal companies get wiped off and the tide wipes them out. Right. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where that, that was, you know, timing, right? Like had I not graduated in the dot-com crash, uh, I would not have uh, found Google. Had I, I would probably have joined, you know, it's one of these random dot coms. You know, two years earlier, that makes such a difference, right? I would probably join one of these random dot coms that would not be around today. And I'd be like, you know, moving out of the valley going, I'm going to go find Safer Harbor and go to a consulting shop or like go to McKinsey or something else rather than, you know, have this crazy roller coaster ride uh, for 15 years at Google. Yeah. And, and it's it's actually pretty topical given where we are in the market. And it does look like the tide has gone out. It's going out. It's gone out yet, right? Like, you know, but every day you read about another crazy set of layoffs. You know, it's really sad that some people, are being are affected by this, but uh, you know there were a lot of bad behavior in marginal companies that got funded, right? You know, every every morning, I you know I, I'm in New York now, and I go down to my my mailbox. There's this whole stack of these these postcards, and you know there's about thirty of these 15 minute grocery delivery companies, you know, that are that are in New York, and you know every every morning it's another 40 percent off coupon in one of these postcards, and uh, you know you just kind of look at this and go, these companies, you know, that are spending six dollars to make every dollar of user acquisition, you just sit there, they can't last. So, you know, luckily I've avoided that. I've always looked at business models of scooters or grocery delivery companies or whatever else and said, I can't, I can't imagine this ever working out. You know, they all, they all get washed out when, when the tide turns and they're, you're seeing that happen. Well, let's deconstruct that a little bit because you are GV and then Felicis Ventures and now, you know, starting your own firm in FPV. But if you, if we look at the different archetypes of founders that you've invested in, and you look at some of the successes, are there certain patterns in terms of the type of founders 
that you found to be the most successful? Yeah, a lot of folks ask me, you know, sort of the, the the corollary to that question, which is, are you thesis driven, right? Like, do you have a thesis like crypto or do you have a or enterprise software or, or, you know, the pandemic, you know, going to remote work? And the answer is no, you know, the founders have that thesis. My job is to go find the founding founders and have them and listen, listen enough to see if they have a unique insight or a thesis in the world. I would never, if you look at my my winners and or my, you know, my track record, you know, I have Canva, I have... Zillis, I have uh, you know, Foundation Medicine. These other, those are cancer companies, right? In life sciences, and I have you know Gusto, and I have Flexport. You know, Gusto's in payroll, and Flexport's in 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 shipping. Uh, you know, I have Robinhood, which is in you know consumerization of uh, or gamification of of, of uh, trading, right? And they're all in different categories, and I never ever you know would have sat there and said I'm looking for a Photoshop or Office reinvention uh, on Canva, or I'm looking for the reinvention of, of global financial sh- uh, you know, logistics with Flexport. You know, I'm, it's the founders that really came up with the idea. And I just was lucky enough to sort of be at the right time, the right moment when they told me their story. And I said like, oh, that dream sounds great. How do I, you know, how, how do I sign on? My investing you know, uh, story is really about finding founders that remind me of Larry and Sergey. You know, the, Canva made the front story the front cover story of uh, Fast Company, they talk about 150 investors rejected them, right? Like, you know, this is legendary, you know, in terms of how many people said no to them because the entire world thought they were building a Photoshop competitor. Oh, Adobe's funded, worth $20 billion. Like, what do we need another competitor for? And you know who said that to Larry and Sergey? All these other venture capitalists that said, there's 20 search engines, Yahoo's the big winner, Alta Vista and, and Hotbot and whatever, you know, failed search engine no longer exists today. And, you know, we don't understand why the world needs another one. Like, we don't get what you guys are doing. It's a blank page with a with a colorful logo, a bar and two buttons. Uh, you know, it's totally different. There's no sports scores or horoscopes. Uh, and look who won. I mean, it's the same thing. Larry and Sergey were mission-driven. Cliff and Mel were mission-driven. Ryan Peterson at Flexport mission-driven, right? These guys have a hundred-year plan to set up to change the world. So my, my investing indexing is really based on whether the person's mission-driven and out to change the world and the world underestimates them. And if you get to them before anyone else gets to them because the world misunderstands them, you make up like a bandit. That's this business. Let's actually look at the application of thinking about mission-driven founders. You know, and Canva is a great example. An Australian-based company, you get introduced by CultureAmp. You're flying out of Australia. I think you missed your flight going back to San Francisco. And you ended up staying with Mel, you know, and, and team for three days, listening to their story. How did you realize that this is a unique team that's truly mission driven, that has a vision that has this, you know, kind of a hundred year term to it? I mean, you know, when I started at Google, one of the craziest things that, you know, Sergey, I was Sergey's chief of staff for you know, many years at Google. I was his first one and you would just, uh, and I was there early enough to, you know, that, that we were still in a leaky tiny office uh, before Google, you know, sort of found its footing and its product market fit. But one of the things that I would just notice with Sergey is he'd come and he'd say, Wesley, I had this hundred year plan. Sometimes it was a thousand year plan. I mean, it was like, who does, who says that? Like most founders can't even manage to the quarter, right? And these guys are talking about their hundred year plan. They had this mission of uh, organizing the world's information, making it universally accessible. And they were, they had all these ideas of like what that would fit in with, whether it was Gmail or YouTube or, you know, video or something else. They said it wasn't just search. The search was the one that like, you know, allowed us to, 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 to make the money uh, and they have an ad system, but they had all these other ideas about things, your personal information, your, your, your email, your, your photos and everything else. Uh, that was their, that was their vision, right? It was a, you know, almost a plan that would last, outlast them. And then they had a unique insight on the world, right? They said, the world's going to be X. And we see it this way. No one else does. And it's kind of what Henry Ford, uh, you know, the whole story about Henry Ford, about chasing the Model T when everybody else is chasing the faster horse-driven carriage. These are product-driven founders, right? They really, truly understand product beyond what any, uh, how anyone else understands. I got to train under this. It was my, one of my great fortunes of being at Google for so long and working 
directly under Sergey was truly understanding, you know, that when, when the world zigs, um, you know, how you zag and how you find that Model T when everybody else is chasing the faster horse-driven carriage. Mel well, was a person that truly understood what the, you know, Model T was when everybody else was chasing Photoshop, right? You know, she, if you just listen to how she pitched it and how she talked about the story of how design was terrible. I mean, she was a yearbook instructor and she was tutoring people on Photoshop and understood truly how terrible that tool was. And she would talk about the failures of it, you know, how many steps you had to have when you wanted to go print out a design, how hard it was to have to train people for four years in high school to teach them the tools so that on their final year, their senior year of high school, that they could make a yearbook. I mean, it's crazy. And she said, like, there's got to be an easier way. You know, anyone should be able to design. When I make a PowerPoint, I shouldn't have to go hire a designer for $2,000 to, like, make it look pretty and send it. And so she created Canva as a result of this. She truly understood this. She thought about this entire life. And it wasn't just, let me go make a Photoshop replacement. It was a tool that you could design anything from websites to t-shirts, to business cards, to your PowerPoint, to your office docs, even your spreadsheets, right? Like, you know, why should spreadsheets be ugly? And it's one of those things where if you truly understood what she was building, it was a reinvention of Microsoft Office for people under 30, right? You know, these people grew up with Instagram and grew up with Snapchat and grew up with TikTok. It was image and with design, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, you know, fashion forward. They cared truly about what things looked like rather than having a text doc and send emails and then go, go put a picture afterwards, right? And so when you think about how she truly understood the world so differently and you just listened and how the world didn't see that. They didn't think that she could build a Photoshop competitor. You know, even when she would bring up the idea of replacing Microsoft Office, everybody was just like, you're crazy. And I said, like, what if he's right? And that, that, remember, when I invested, no revenue far away in Australia, I missed my flight back, like no one thought it. And even after my investment, everybody was like, what are you doing? I don't get this. They, have no, they don't have the money. And I sat there, I'm like, what if she's right? Who knows? And guess what? She was right. Yeah. And we've seen, of course, over time, some of the biggest venture outliers were companies that at the very beginning, you know, people thought they were, the founders were a little crazy or it was something that wasn't going to work. Uber's a great example. In fact, Uber was on AngelList where anybody could invest. And I've read the Canvas story, and there's a lot of things that, just generally speaking, from an investment standpoint, were unorthodox, not located in the U.S., a romantically involved founding team, high valuation, no revenue. And one thing that I'm incredibly curious on is how do you reconcile between having conviction and then realizing there's so many variables, at least in this case, that just don't fit the traditional venture heuristics? My my investing style has always been one where you know I, I go off the beaten path, right? Like you're right. Who back this is back in 2015 when most firms didn't have an international strategy. Who would go and invest in a company that was run by a romantically involved founding team building, you know, what everybody thought was a Photoshop replacement that didn't have any revenue and wanted to transact at over hundred billion dollars, right? But you make your money in this business and you differentiate yourself in this business when you find something where everybody's running away from the fire and you run into it. And when you happen to run in it, you realize it's not, the building's not burning down. In fact, like, you know, they're building, you know, a pot of gold in here. And it's one of those things where that's what makes your career. No one, if I was a, a lot of investors are FOMO driven. Oh my gosh, Sequoia's chasing it, Andreessen's chasing it, Greylock's chasing it. If they're chasing it, what's the point of me chasing it, right? I'm too late. You don't make your name in this business and you don't, you know, create amazing products when everybody else has done it. It's easy to copy everybody else. I mean, at Google, that was the thing that like Larry would trade me. You can't copy somebody else. They, they did it that way. There's something wrong with it. The world sort of saw, you know, what consensus looked like and it was okay. And if you built something completely different, like Gmail, when we gave away two gigabytes to everyone, whatever else giving, what was Hotmail giving away? 25? Yahoo Mail was giving away 25 megabytes and Google does two gigabytes. What a difference. I remember Larry 
crossing out the, you know, I think they were the original team at Gmail. I was in the room, uh, one of the 200 megabytes and Larry just crossed it out and put two gigabytes and the whole team just sat there going like, well, that's going to bankrupt the company. And Larry's like, you can't give something else that like, you know, you can't give something to everybody else. That's just like incremental 200 is incremental. Two gigabytes is exponential. I mean, these product, these mission driven founders, these product led growth founders, they truly see something that isn't incremental. Like you look at all these grocery delivery companies, everything's incremental, right? Like, you know, what's the difference between one grocery delivery company and another one? They're all giving me 35% off coupons. And the only, the only way I'm deciding is who, who I have a discount on, not who is the best service or who has the best brand, right? Like, you know, I couldn't care less. Like as long as the groceries arrive on time, I get the cheapest price. They're all on a race down to zero. And you look at these companies like Flexport or like, like, like Canva, or you look like Guild Education, which is giving free culture degrees. They're all monopolies. Because they've created something that nobody else could figure out how to do it. They did it first and they moved fast. And then they basically have a 100-year plan to seize up all the great features and have the team and the resources and the capital to build it. Those are the founders that win. And then those are the ones that generate extraordinary results. So my job is to find them, right? And I've had a good history of finding them over my 13 years. And, you know, you find these founders, you know, they remind you of Larry and Sergey. And that was the one thing. I had this forty. Uh, I had this spread. I had this spreadsheet on my flight home to Australia. As I was after I met Cliff and Mel, you know, it was like three days to sort schedule another flight, and I had the fifteen-hour flight home from back to San Francisco. And I I created the spreadsheet, and uh, on one it was two columns: reasons not to do Canva or the risks. I called it risks, and then the reasons to do Canva or the 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 benefits. And there was forty reasons I wrote down why not to do it. Right, like no revenue. You know, this, this is career limiting if it fails. Romantically engaged team, not 20% ownership, no board seat. They wouldn't give me a board seat. I'm on the board now, but they wouldn't give a board seat at the Series A. That was super dilution sensitive, so we couldn't get 20%. You know, what was the orthodoxy then? You had to get 20% far away from home, right? 15-hour flight to get there. Most VCs wouldn't, you know, they, they got turned down by many VCs that said, I, you know, I'm, I'm passing on you for the simple reason I can't ride my bike to you, you guys. Because, you know, if I'm on your board, I have to be able to ride my bike to your company. That was in the days before we had Zoom. And everybody was freaked out about having to be there in person in the office, right? Um, boy, how the times have changed. And then, you know, different time zone, you know, too much work, too much flying, world misunderstands a product. Maybe not, maybe this is the last round they raise because the world doesn't understand what they're doing. And then I wrote down one one thing in the uh, in the reasons to do it column. It was, uh, reminds me of Larry and Sergey. What if it is Google? And I said, yeah. Yeah, I said, yeah, that's, everybody else ran away from the uh, fire. You know, I ran into it and it turned out not to be a fire. It turned out to be like, you know, this, this amazing fountain of gold that they had built. And again, I had nothing to do with it. It was all them. All I had to do was say yes when everybody else said no. And sort of, you know, now now it's one of those stories where you look at it and go like, wow, I can't believe he saw it. And I just said, like, no, it reminds me of Larry and Sergey. Everybody else was chasing ARR or money or revenue or growth or churn. It's the wrong thing. I think it's really easy to think about and rationalize that you should be investing particular in venture and things that are overlooked, underappreciated, non-consensus, but it's harder to do than to say, and oftentimes investors are pushed toward consensus, given the risk involved of investing in things that everybody else says no to. Are there certain investor characteristics that are required to have in your own DNA to be able to invest like that consistently? Yeah. I mean, I was trained for 15 years at Google, right? You know, majority of them and they're Larry and Sergey, you know, I was there helping them out with the company goals as, you know, Sergey's chief of staff. And I was a product manager too, right? Like I have a storied history of building some of Google's best products. It's in fact, one of the reasons why, you know, Mel at Canva and, and Didier at Culture and Craig Walker at Dialpad and, and Ryan Peterson at Flexport, you know, let me invest in, you know, in their company in the first place. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I was trained by some of the best product people on the planet. 
And when you build products and everybody's, you know, thinking that they need a faster horse-driven carriage and you come up with the Model T, it's lonely. I mean, when I built Google Analytics, nobody, everybody said, that, oh, everybody else has this logs analysis. Like, why does Google need to do it? You know, Fox in the hen house. I had this head of sales come up at, at Google and said, this, don't do this. You're going to expose how bad the ad system is. And I'm like, I work on the ad system. I know how bad it is. Better we know than before our customers know, right? And look at it today, 90% market share. It was lonely to do it. In fact, no one at Google wanted to even work with me on it. I had to go buy a company called Urchin Software in San Diego to get that product launched. And now today has like, you know, 80, 90% market share and everybody uses Google Analytics. Like when you're at a company where you're building product way ahead of its time and you have to see the world differently and you're trained to see the world differently and build some of these, 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 these products that, you know, the world doesn't appreciate when you launch it, but only appreciates it after the fact. Like it's a very, very lonely journey, right? It's one of those things where, you know, the founders that, that build things like Canva or build, you know, Gusto or build Flexport, it's a lonely journey at the beginning because all these people doubt you and say, no, or it's a low margin business or like, you know, this is, you can't, you can't do this. Like, you know, there's all these people with these, 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 these larger amounts of money or, or so forth. I mean, like, can you imagine people telling Henry Ford that like, you know, there's no infrastructure in place, you know, there's too much money in the horse industry right now. And like the carriage industry is going dis to disrupt the, it was way too well funded. What are you doing with this random engine and this Model T thing? Like, it's stupid. And he just said, too bad, I'm going to do it anyways. The founders that I back have that same gumption. I don't care what the world says, I'm doing this. I'm going to fund this money in my, I'm going to fund this company in my credit card and like, you know, get credit cards in my parents' name and cut it up and like, you know, you know, mortgage my house or whatever I have to do to make it happen. And the world ignores them, underestimate them, right? Like look at Rachel at Guild Education. She's another one of, of the big winners that I've been fortunate enough to, to have the opportunity to back, right? You know, she's building free college degrees for Walmart and for Disney and for Chipotle as an employee benefit. The world said, that's crazy. Like, who's going to pay for that? And look, you know, it's, you know, it's, she's got all these great customers like Target and Macy's and, and JP Morgan signing on today, giving all of their employees a college degree as a free benefit that they pay for. I mean, it's incredible, right? And, you know, she's worth, you know, from five billion today. It's a big round that she raised, even this pandemic that she just announced. I mean, it's one of those things where when you back founders like that, where the world ignores it or misunderstands it, like you get these outrageous returns. And again, that's why I'm starting this fund. So I can focus on finding those people. And I have a history of finding those folks. And when you find them and you're lucky, and if you find just one of them, you know, you've returned 40x of fun, you find a lot of them, you return like, you know, legendary returns, right? That's how you generate alpha in this business. And, you know, the fund I'm building now is to, to, to you know, find these great founders. And my advantage in finding them is I've already backed 400 plus of them. I have 400 plus founders that I've worked with. You know, Tony Fidel from Nest. You know, you look at Cliff and Mel from, from Canva, Ryan Peter from Flexport. They're all, they're all LPs, you know, in my fund. These, all these amazing founders, and they refer and they tell me, these are the next generation of mission-driven founders. You got to work with them. Here's the next Larry and Sergey. Here's the next Cliff and Mel from Canva. And when they tell me, I put some money in this person. I think that's person mission driven. Guess what? I'm on the next plane or car or whatever I need to get out there to say, of course you're mission driven. How can I help? I've seen this happen 25 times, you know, you know, in my in my career as a VC with 400 different people that have done it slightly differently. And you know, this this family is gonna help you succeed. You know, don't worry, the world's ignoring you, but I'm not. Let's segue actually to um, your new firm, FVV, which uh, congrats on the uh, oversubscribed fund one, which you raised 450 million. Tell us a little bit about how you thought about fund sizing. The market obviously has changed so much since you started GV back in 2009 with your partners. Funds are getting bigger. There's much more segmentation in the venture industry. And you could have raised significantly more capital. Why did you decide you know, 450 was the right amount? And tell us your overall mental framework in terms of fund sizing. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm a I'm an engineer by training, and in engineering, they teach you to, to do the bottoms-up analysis. A lot of people do top-down. Oh, like, you know, if I do this, and your assumptions are all wrong when you go top-down. When you go bottoms-up and you sort of say, well, 
I want to back how many how many mission driven founders or mission driven companies do I need to back? I probably need about fifteen of them in every portfolio, right? So the goal is to find fifteen. How long will it take me to find this? Look at my my history of finding them. I find you know two to three every year, right? You know I've been fortunate enough that you know the founder referral rate you know it's around two to three every year. You know and when I was at Felicis or or Google Ventures, I would stumble upon you know companies like Robinhood or Flexport or Gusto or AngelList, and it would happen at the rate of about two to three a year. So. You know, I have one partner, Pega Ebrahimi, who was the former CEO of Morgan Stanley's investment bank and the former CEO of uh, Cisco's largest division. And, you know, we sort of said, like, how long will it take us to find this? Two to three a year. So if you assume that and you say, how much is, is every 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 company going to cost at a Series A or, you know, an early Series B, which is our sweet spot when we get into it. And we say those those Series A's and B's are going between 15 and 20 now, right? And if you think about 15 companies at two to three a year that you find, you know, and you, you you do a few of them that may not necessarily fit that mold uh, because you have to, or because you, know, you spot something in the founder, but you're not quite sure of the product market fit that you come up with, you know, to deploy 220 or 230 million or so, you know, that, that, that that's going to, that's the, that's the fun size you have to do. And then if you follow on 50% reserves, that's 450 right there. Bottoms up analysis, right? 10 to 15 companies, you know, around 15 to $25 million, you know, investments with a 50% reserve, you get the 450. And if three or four of them become Canva's, one of them becomes Canvas, you can return, you know, 10, 15, 20x the fund. I mean, it's very possible to do that math, right? And so that's the that's the fun math of how how, how we're gonna, you know, build this is we're just gonna have a great collection, 10 to 15 companies, you know, more around 15 of these amazing mission-driven founders of which anyone has a chance of being the next Canva. And if it becomes the next Canva, we can get one of them, you know, with five to 10x fund returns that we can sort of generate on that because they return, you know, they return two to three billion. That's the math. And that's why why we came up with that number, right? Like any more than that, like you know, it's going to be hard to get the 10x returns, you know. And that's what I'm what I'm what I'm hoping. If uh, if I'm lucky enough, and you know, if I play my cards right and roll the dice uh, and those land in the right place, I can have you know more of these outrageous uh, fun returners that uh, that uh, I've been able to uh, generate over my last 13 years. Just hearing you speak about the uh, the firm and how you approach investing, a lot of a lot of it, it seems very simple in terms of the methodology of. Bottoms up, you know. In in your case, a very concentrated portfolio, where your high conviction bets, and then of course pouring in capital to the ones that end up being right. But tell us a little bit about the ethos of the firm and how did you and your partner Pega, in particular, come together and decide that the two of you were uniquely positioned to execute on that ethos. One of the most amazing things, uh, you know, I asked. I was just. As any good product manager does, you ask your founders that you've worked with, you know, why did you work with me? What's your edge? Most of them said, like, look, you you have our back. You know, you're the guy that is willing not to take a board seat because, you know, you're going to help me manage the board. You know, a lot of people have this ego. And as a VCO, I want to be in the board. I want control. And I actually have the exact opposite, which is I want uh, to be your first phone call. And if it means that I am on this board where you have to manage up to me and you don't trust me or you feel oh, I'm going to fire you or there's some like misaligned, you know, behavior, I don't want to be on your board. I'd rather just be your first phone call. In fact, that's, you know, we asked for our founders what FTV stands for. You know, originally we started out as founder's point of view, but, you know, our founders came up with a bunch of other names. And first phone call ventures is like one of the many names that you know, we hope that, you know, people remember us for, right? Because that's how I measure my success is not whether you make money. It's whether I'm your first phone call right now at this point of the journey and then at the end of your journey, whether I'm still your first phone call. That's a reference I want you to give everybody. If I screw up on that one, I don't care how much money you make or whether it's a write down or in a zero, like I, I've screwed up my my uh, my investment in your company. And so that's the edge that I have is that I've become first phone call for so many of these amazing founders whose journeys they were, they were, they were um, journeys that I was fortunate enough to be a part of, whether it was Canva or 
or Flexport or, or Gusto. And because I was first phone call, like, you know, I have this, 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 this relationship with the founder where, you know, they tell other founders, Wesley did this for me. He had my back, like, you know, in those moments of need when no one else believed in what we were doing, he was the first check, you know, he made sure our next round was raised because he put his reputation on the line and called up a hundred VCs and said like, look, you got to, you know, invest in this one too. I'm in it. And here's the reason why. And it's one of those things where when you have this reputation uh, and founders say that about you, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where it's a gift that keeps on giving, right? Like, you know, it's a word of mouth business where the currency in my business is my reputation. And my reputation is one of not only finding amazing outliers when the world underappreciates them or when nobody else sees it, it's having their back throughout the history, the entire, you know, the entirety of their journey. That's the edge that I have, right? That's how I win deals, how I can get into them. It's how even, you know, having a brand new firm where it doesn't have a brand yet. It's not Sequoia. It's not Greylock. It's not some of these firms that have been around 40 years. I can still get into companies, especially in competitive rounds or even in between rounds because the founders know my 15-year, you know, history of just working closely with people, whether it's on the product side at Google, whether it was at Google Ventures or Felicis or now, where I have this reputation for having their back throughout the entirety of their journey and nurturing their business and helping them achieve their dreams, right? And... Pega, who's my partner, has that same ethos. She's on so many advisory boards. She's on so many public boards uh, because she has this nurturing ability to help founders achieve their dream and be their first phone call as well. And so, you know, other than many things that FPV stands for, you know, the core values of our firm is really to be the founder's first phone call, to understand truly the founder's point of view and invest on a set of first principles. You know, the other name for FPV is first principle ventures, right? Like, which is, is it mission driven? And is this a founder worthy? of having their back throughout the entire journey and vice versa. Do they feel we're worthy of backing and helping them achieve their dreams? If those things align, we'll do the investment back of the truck, right? And you know, have their back for life. You know, it's a, it's the ethos of how we nurture founders and how they nurture us, right? Like, you know, they're I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful two-way relationship where at the end of it, we, you know, hopefully they'll say we're their first one goal. What does it look like in practice? Because if you think about every sort of venture pitch, it's, you know, we help founders, we, you know, roll up our sleeves and, and get, you know, our hands dirty, but ultimately, yeah. But what isn't said? What isn't said in that is that you know, while they help founders, founders don't trust most of their VCs. They don't. If they if they did, um, you know, that firm would have an amazing reputation. People would they win every single deal. But like you know, for some reason, VCs behave in a way where founders will trust them. You know, how many boards am I on where like you know I sort of go on there? It's kabuki theater, right? And I'm the guy that said maybe I just step out this board and just be the guy that helps you manage the board versus like you know being on your board. And they said, oh, maybe that's a better idea. So I do that. I'm one of the few VCs that says, I don't need the board seat. I'd rather be off your board seat because you're going to manage the rest of your board. That's that's the difference, right? A lot of people say, I help the founders. You know, not a lot of people say I'm the first phone call. You know, you, you talk a little bit about that. And going back to some of your history with some of these founders, it's a lot of, it sounds like there's a lot of empathy along the way in terms of what you're you're doing. And of course, it's product. It's helping them get the next round. It's probably hiring. Are there any sort of commonalities in terms of what you found founders really care about from a service orientation with their VCs? It's it's really interesting, right? Like you know, I at GB I built I helped build the the uh, the supermarket of services it works really well. But at Fleece's, you know, we we have some services, but we didn't really have a big supermarket of services. And you know, at FPV, it's me and Pega, right? Like we're gonna have a small team, very very lean and quick decisions. And what what founders want most is trust from their investors, not 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 like you know how many recruiters do you have, or or like you know can you pass me off to a, a team of people who can introduce me to a bunch of of, of companies. That's that's our value proposition. It isn't like I'm going to go do everything for you. It's going to be you know I would be there in a moment of need, and especially if there's an inflection point that you need help on, we we've got your back. That's that's a very different value proposition than you know all these VCs say I'm going to help you. Going back to sort of the competitive landscape, you mentioned 
the amount of capital obviously has been pretty extreme in the in the venture market. There's you know close to 3,500 US VC firms, and they all they come in different shapes and sizes. And I think that you know we've seen the mega firms get bigger and be able to write bigger checks with higher valuations. How do you think about competitive positions? I, you, you laid it out a little bit in terms of your reputation, the fact that you've had your founders back. A lot of your you know, new companies come from referrals from your existing you know, portfolio companies that you've sat on the boards with, been through wars with. But tell us a little bit about the competitive market today and how do you think about differentiating relative to some of the bigger shops? I don't, right? You know, here's, here's the thing. Founders know who they want to work with. And some founders care about the brand of the shop. Oh, I need Sequoia. I need Greylock. I need the brand. Fine. The, you know, at some point, every founder, you know, wants one of those brands on their thing. That's great. You know, I work perfectly in that model too, right? And then some founders want the guy who says, I believe in you and who has a track record of picking winners. You know, I've got 20, I've got 20 plus unicorns, like you pointed out, five decacorns. Like, you know, there's no shortage of winners and that I've, I've picked. And those founders, Cliff and Mel, Rachel Guild, Ryan Peterson Fluxford all take phone calls from the founders I work with, whether you know they're decacorns or you know starting out at the beginning of the career. And so you get that access to you know this family that you know we built because you know look, they have the same empathy for founders that are at the beginning of the career. Just thinking, they just can't take calls from every founder that winds up calling them or emailing them. And so you know when they're when they're part of the family here that we're building at FPV, like, you know, they get access to some of those big winners too. Many of those founders are LPs in this fund. Many of them are, will become portfolio CEOs and many of them are, you know, advisors, right? And so, you know, that's, that's, that, that network is, is powerful. Look, the, the reason why I can keep this team so small is every founder goes through, you know, five to 10, you know, moments where they're sitting there going, I'm losing sleep over this, right? Do I part ways with my co-founder? Do I need to hire this VP? Did I outgrow this person? My board is like giving me crap. Do I need to sell? Is this business relationship worth it? And I've seen this happen in the, you know, I've, I've backed 80 companies, you know, like I said, 20 of them, a quarter of them have been, you know, massive winners. And I've seen that scale happen. I saw it firsthand when I was at Google, right? And so my job is to be, have the founders back in those moments, those 10 to 15 moments during their journey when they're losing sleep and going like, if I screw up the decision, the company's effed and say, don't worry, I got your back. And that's this choice. It's been solved 20 different ways. And here's 20 different founders who've all solved it different ways. Here's five of them that you know will will tell you their story so that you have a playbook to figure out how to solve this one. And by the way, when you give them that access, that playbook, in that moment of need when they're losing sleep and they they don't they don't know whether their solution that they thought about in their head at that moment is going to work, and it's existential for them in their business. Like you know, let me tell you that referral that you get, as they say, as they tell the next generation of you know Flexports and Canvas and and Culture Amps and Dial Pads that like Wesley's the guy I call. First phone call, he solved this problem for me. I mean, that reference is, is golden. That's a very different relationship than like, oh, like, you know, I'm helpful and I can help you recruit. The recruiting thing, let, let's be fair here. The recruiting thing, the introductions to, you know, big, big, you know, big potential customers, that's all table stakes. Every, every, every VC does that. But not every VC has your back. That's, that's the big difference that we have. And, you know, again, we're legend, Peg and I are legendary, you know, in our behavior on this. In terms of your methodology of working with founders and being that first phone call, I'm curious whether there was something early in your career of observing how somebody worked that really catalyzed your investing style and you know your approach toward working with the uh, the founders you invested in, or was it something that was learned over time? No, the the most interesting insight in reflecting back over my 15 years at Google was that you know 
the singular person that probably had the highest impact on Google's success wasn't me, wasn't, wasn't like some of these people you read about. It was Bill Campbell. I mean, Bill Campbell is a legendary coach. And like, he was a guy that like always would have this full-time employee badge on him, but he was never in the company directory. You couldn't go into the website and like log onto it and go like, oh, who's, who's this Bill Campbell guy? And he was, well, there's, he was a missing entry. He would show up at every board meeting, every staff meeting, Larry and Sergey is repairing things. We just yell at everybody. And it's like, my God, dude, you're not doing, you're not doing this well, blah, blah, blah. Like this, this impact is too low. Why are you wasting time on this? And then he'd like chew you out like a football coach would. He was actually a football coach for the, for the Columbia a university football team. And then he'd hug you at the end and say, I believe in you, you can do this. That love and empathy that he'd have in you, and he'd like, he'd be right. He'd sit there and he'd like present this, he'd work your entire weekend coming up with this presentation, he'd chew you out afterwards in private, of course. And he'd hug you and said, I believe in you, you can do this. And he, you know, the point he would bring up was like, is this worthy of your time? Is this, is this high enough standards? Are people going to love what you've built? Is this truly what Steve Jobs would launch at Apple? Because he was Steve Jobs' coach too, right? Like, I mean, he got to see everything. I mean, little did I know when I when I watched Bill Campbell yell at people that he would be one of his most influential and legendary people that, you know, people would call him the own dollar coach. And I got to watch this firsthand for like, you know, 10 plus years of Google, with, you know, Bill Campbell's coming, chewing people out. And like, you know, I got a front row seat to that. And I was like, oh. And then I thought about what I did, right? Like, it's like in the, I'm, leg I'm also legendary uh, for, for being um, super honest with founders, right? Like in their moment going of, of, oh, all these people love me, blah, blah, blah. I raise another round. I'm like, well, it's just the beginning. You got a, you got a long journey ahead of you. And like, you haven't won yet. Some founders don't like that, but the ones that I work with where, you know, they know I have their back, you know, they sit there. It's like, well, that kept me up at night for a couple of weeks, but yeah, you were right. Now I'm changing the company on this. Like, you know, how many VCs also have that relationship with their, with their founders. Right. So it's, it's one of those things where, where, um, you know, life is too short. I got to watch Bill Campbell yell at it. I, you know, I don't claim to anywhere to be close to Bill Campbell or anything else, but there are some behaviors that he had that I sort of sat there and just said like, well, what if I did those things and help my founders out with that? Give them a little taste to Bill Campbell, you know, and, and, and holding them to high standards and helping them build the model to you. And again, in this lonely journey when everybody else is, you know, you think that everybody else is running after the, the horse driven carriage and you have the model T and you're sitting there going, am I really doing the right thing? You know, you've got me and you're saying cheerleading you and going, yeah, you're right. Keep going. I believe in you. You can do it. I love the Bill Campbell reference, and what a lot of people don't know is that he actually started his career in technology fairly late. I think it was late 30s or early 40s. And I want to zoom out maybe for a, for a minute here and think about where we are in the cycle. And you've been, interesting enough, you've started your career and made transitions in your career during economic cycles. I think Google starting in, at, at, the, at the company in 2000, then GV in 2009, and now starting FPV during a time where it's very clear that the market has turned in a very uh, dramatic way. And it doesn't appear that we're going to go back to, you know, what we saw in 2020, 21, really the, the decade before that. Where do, where do you think we are? And what do the next few years of private investing in, in technology look like? Look, a lot of companies got funded over the last 10 years that shouldn't have been. And let's be fair here, right? You know, we've seen the massive collapse of a few of them. Um, we had so, you know, with the stimulus from the pandemic, with all the stimulus that we got from even the global financial crisis for the last 10 years, right? Interest rates were down at like, you know, almost zero. Money was cheap and free. And when you have all that cheap and free money flowing in, you know, you get a lot of people funding things that are marginal. What's the cost of funding it if it's marginal? You lose it. You just get more money. People are printing cash and that money's going to be swirling around for the next nine months. But like, as you know, we, 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 we see all that money leaving the system and the valuations falling and people moving and interest rates rising and inflation rising and no more government stimulus. That's the most important thing. Like if the government was going to print more money and you know, this would last another 10 plus years, but we're not, you know, everybody realized we, we, the party's over. 
it's going to take six to nine months for the rest of the world to to see this to see what's happening. And when it happens, I think we're going to have a period of of, of uh, pullback. You know, I think uh, having that hard conversation with many of my founders, you know, I'm still working with from my old firm, going the world's pulling back, free money's gone. You know, you should think about what that looks like if you can't raise more money. And you know, even in my raise for this fund, I had a lot of LPs tell me I'm their only fund that new managers are they're taking on, and there's no new. There's no new more private manager to bring onto their their endowment or their into their into their uh, into their base, and you know when 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 uh, there are many existing funds today that have called me up. It's like, hey, you know, I heard you just raised and you were oversubscribed. Can you help me? Give me a hand. Uh, introduce me to some of your LPs, and I'm like, no, they're all shut down. They won't take new managers. You know, got to wait another couple of years when 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 you know when the treachery of you know our, our crazy behavior over the last ten years is is over. Why am I saying this? It's because when the people who are my funders, my LPs, become tight-fisted. The venture market becomes tight-fisted, right? People can't raise future funds. We watched, uh, you know, PitchBook did this really interesting study where, you know, the, you know, before the global financial crisis, you know, I think it was 75% of new, of people who raised first-time funds could raise a second-time fund. And then during the global financial crisis, that number dropped to the 40%, right? 40%. People got wiped out left and right because all the LP money got tight. And I think that's going to happen even more so, right? Because LPs are going to realize as interest rates go up, as inflation goes up, there are going to be other opportunities in the private markets, which were the, which, which driven by all this crazy behavior of, you know, large, you know, $10 billion plus firms that were in the public markets, moving a lot of that public money because it was too expensive to the private markets and writing things up at insane multiples and that stopping, you're going to watch a pullback in the privates. Um, and I'm just, I'm, 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 half of me is giddy. Right now, because it's a you know it's an amazing time to have a fund fully raised, and the other half of me is just kind of sad because you know a lot of excess will mean a lot of people get affected by this in a very very negative way. Layoffs, you know, like we saw in two thousand and the dot com crash. You know, I still remember going through six roommates in a period of you know a year when I was working at Google, where I would find all these roommates on Craigslist, and then their dot com company would implode, and then two months later they'd like pack up a U haul and move back in with their family. We're going to see some of that. And it will last a lot longer. It will take a it will take a Canva or a Databricks or something to reopen the IPO market and get people excited again about this. But uh, we're going to be in a period of three to four years of possible uh, sort of downturn, and it will be very interesting watching that, especially from you know, having been through this twice. But you know, it's like what Bill Campbell would tell me at Google: never let a good disaster go to waste. You know, you always want to capture this moment, and you know, when the, when the tide goes out, you want to be the one sitting there going like, "Hi, I'm I'm open for business." And, you know, I, my, my, my take is having been through this twice, you know, both in 09 and both in 01, um, you know, founders will want a seasoned operator and a seasoned investor who's been through two of these crises, who's seen the world turn and who can give them hope that, you know, if they're not a marginal business and they're a quality business and they're really, truly making money and they're truly building something that the world is valuable, they truly have something that the product, uh, they truly have a product that the world wants that as long as they have capital, and I'm really good at finding capital for them, right? But they'll survive. And all they do is outlast everybody else that like they misbehave poorly or got funded or can't raise money or like will get wiped out, you know, as, as the tide goes out. So um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm exceptionally hopeful. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in a big pile of, of capital right now to be able to work with amazing founders. And if you're truly mission-driven and you're truly thoughtful in what you're building and you believe you have the model team and everybody else is chasing the fast forward driven carriage and you have a hundred year plan and you're the type of guy that says, uh, or the type of gal that says, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to believe in so much of what I'm doing. I've been thinking about this my whole life and I'll back it with, you know, credit cards or my mom's house or whatever you need to get this going. Then, you know, we're the type of person, uh, you're the type of person, you know, we dream about working about, you know, we have you know, 400 plus of them, uh, whether it's Larry and Sergey or 
Cliff and Mel from Camder, Ryan from Flexport, who went through that same journey early on with the world and believe in them. And, you know, they have hundred year plans and they're the ones that will survive this uh, and thrive actually as all the, all the random companies get wiped out. I totally agree with that. And it's very clear that capital is going to be constricted, but the best companies continue to get funded. You know, I do have a corollary question re- related to the venture environment. Because we've seen so many new firms form over the last decade, and many are moving from a fund one to a fund two or a fund two to a fund three, is there any advice you'd give to somebody that's only invested in a up into the right time on how to invest through these type of cycles? Yeah, my, my, my job is not to advise other fund managers, to advise founders, right? Like, you know, other fund managers will do what they do. And, you know, if you haven't been through a crisis in 01 or 01 where it was completely brutal, good luck, right? Um, it's really other, it's, the, you know, the audience that matters for me is founders. And all I have to say is survive if the fight again another day, be a quality company. You know, there's a, the quality companies always get funded, right? The marginal ones get wiped out. That's something Bill Campbell also taught me. It's like, Wesley, make sure you're working on something high quality and not marginal. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? He's like, the marginal companies get washed away when there's a downturn. So don't, don't, don't be part of that marginal group, right? You know, what do I consider marginal? You know, it's companies that spend $6 to make every $1. Like if you're not capital efficient, you're marginal, right? No one wants to be part of, you know, business that doesn't make money. The second thing is like, if you don't truly understand what value you're creating or why the business matters, I think half, three quarters of crypto companies don't understand what their value is. I called it in November and I said, half these freaking coins in these you know, crypto efforts are Ponzi schemes. And there's still lots of money flushing around there. But like, you know, you saw this pullback. There are a lot of companies that are Ponzi schemes in itself, right? Like, you know, whether they're pushing Adderall to the kids or whatever else, like there are a lot of like bad companies out there and they get washed away when people truly understand they're not doing valuable things for the world, right? And the founders are clearly not mission driven. They're out for themselves, right? Rather than out for, out for out to change the world. So you know, like I said, my, my discipline over the last 13 years has yielded outlier success. My hope it continues. You know, my hope that the strategy I have is timeless. The founders and the companies I back are timeless. That was the other thing Bill Campbell taught me was about timelessness, right? You want to back the things that everybody looks at in the recession or in a, in a, in a bubble that, like, that everybody loves. That's why I'm in so many life science companies. They're timeless. If you're going to, people are still going to get cancer, whether the economy is doing well or not. And, you know, the value of having a therapeutic that can alleviate the suffering or that can help cure cancer is timeless. And so we have a lot of life science companies that we back. In fact, that's some of my best returns, right? Again, if I had a thesis and I was like a thesis four driven on a sector or something else, I wouldn't have touched life sciences. But here we are, right? Like, and that was one of the wonderful things I learned from David Crane and Krishna Yeshwan at, at, at GV and Bill Maris was, you know, how important life sciences was. It was one of the best returning sectors at GV early on. And I happened to be fortunate enough to be part of that life science team at, at, at Google Ventures when it first started. The 09 and 010 funds were a lot driven by some of these amazing life science companies like Foundation Medicine or Adamab that like the team invested in. So we're going to do that same strategy, timeless companies that are durable and that outlast and that everybody finds fashionable, whether there's a, a downturn or not. And they turn to be high quality companies that not, are not marginal. And when you when you back those ones, even if it looks kind of boring or random or like everybody's chasing crypto and you're like, oh, I'm chasing a boring you know company doing 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 design, doing a design software that people find, you know, helps them with their productivity. Those are the, that's how you outlast you know, multiple financial crises. And I've, you know, I've survived two of them. You know, this one will hopefully won't be too big of a problem. Yeah. Well, and, and we've seen great companies be formed regardless of cycle. And I've always said that innovation doesn't recognize market cycles. Thanks so much for being on. Congrats on launching FPV with um, Pega. We're excited to see the uh, progress. And uh, this is a really fun conversation. So thank you. That's awesome. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Wes. To learn more about him or FPV, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.